chapter 3 with me. Gary, did you want to say anything as an introduction to the series that's coming up, or you want me to just kind of mention it? Okay. <clears throat> this is a beginning of a, you could say, multiple two sermonettes, I guess you could call it, of 20 minutes apiece, leading up and through Easter. I didn't choose the text. Gary chose them for me. I'm always glad when he does that. It makes the work a lot less. Mine is introductory. Needless to say, my dear brother Gary, who I love to death, put the onus on me right off the bat. He says, by the way, just remember, Todd, that everyone else's 20-minute sermons depends on your success today. (laughs) So, how do I respond to that? Calling upon the grace of God. Let's read from verse 11. We have down in your notes, verse 13, but let's get two more verses of context. As for me, by the way, Matthew 3, 11 through 17. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse or clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And after being baptized, he went immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let me start off by asking a thing of you. That is, for those who are saved here, picture the day that you were saved. Picture the power of the working of the Holy Spirit within you. As if the dove was cooing in your ears. And your heart was enlivened for the first time. Picture yourself by the Jordan this day. One crying in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair. This strange man from the desert, eating locusts and honey. If you're unsaved here, picture yourself by the shores of the Jordan saying, What are these strange things and these strange words this man is saying? Who is this one he is talking about to come? He's talking as if it's immediate, already about to happen. That is my task for this day. But it does apply to us personally. To bring the joy of our salvation back in the flooding waters of the washing of the water of the word and the washing of the spirit of God within the soul each one of us who proclaim Christ and to potential for those who are unsaved this day that that event of the arrival of Christ in your heart can happen as it has with so many. John the Baptist is one crying in the wilderness and he's calling at the Jordan at this moment, preparing the way for Messiah. It is the title of this 20 minute sermon, maybe 20 minutes. He is preparing the way for Messiah. The world has gone its own way, the broad way to everlasting destruction. God is sending His only begotten Son to be the narrow way. John the Baptist's ministry is widespread at this period of time in Matthew 3. From Jerusalem, from the region of Judea, and from up and down the Jordan River, they have come to this strange man, and camel's hair. 
He's proclaiming a gospel of repentance. A gospel of, you could say, not yet, but already yet, right now, at the footstep. A gospel of repentance that is anticipating one who will receive a repentant heart and give the waters of life. There is, in Ezekiel chapter 36, many scholars also point to John chapter 3 as well, as an echo of the Old Testament prophet himself, speaking about this day that has now finally come, in which John the Baptist is speaking. I shall cleanse you with clean water. I will cleanse you from all of your sin and all of your idols. And they're in the water. John the Baptist immersing those who would repent unto life. He's also speaking of a greater day. One that is going to be beyond his own life. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Not just as in the Old Testament in relationship to when the Holy Spirit is seen in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant as the Spirit of God who is with them and empowered them. But the Spirit of God who will come and abide within those who profess faith in Messiah. Basically, as the sermon title is, John the Baptist in a contemporary way is just saying, ladies and gentlemen, you're Messiah. Here he is. Ezekiel 36 also says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I will prove myself holy among you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. Here the Father is going to vindicate his name through his only begotten Son. John's message is to, to announce that Emmanuel is with us. God in human flesh. Fully God and fully man. We might compare it to the State of the Union Address in a very small way. Before the Congress assembles to hear the President, well, I should say they're all assembled at that moment when the address is about to be given. The Sergeant of Arms has the doors open for him. He walks down the aisle a little bit. And he says... Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Brothers and sisters, your Messiah, the King of the universe, the Creator of the world, the Son of Man and the Son of God. John will say, Mark will record, when Jesus returns back to the Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mark 1-2 says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. John the Baptist is preparing Christ's way. Make ready the way of the Lord. Get out of my way, he says. I'm here. Now there's an understatement here that is the biggest, largest understatement of the entire Bible, and I'll prove it. Look at verse 13. We'll just read three words. Then Jesus arrived. That's the biggest understatement in all of human history. His arrival surpasses the Apollo mission. 1969, three men went to go, or two men to walk on the moon, one to orbit the moon, Neil Armstrong stands in the moon and accomplishes a great feat. And yet his arrival and his first footsteps on the moon is nothing to compare to Jesus' arrival. How about Columbus' arrival in the West Indies? Ugh, chattel. Chicken feed, we might say. Farmer's race. How about, his, how about the American forces' arrival in Berlin after... The Nazis were defeated. Nothing to compare. Every historical event cannot compare to this arrival. These three little words are everything to humanity and mankind. John reveals to us the impact it's had on him, this arrival. He basically says, I was expecting you, but having seen you, I'm unworthy to unlatch the laces of your sandals.
unworthy. I wonder if John the Baptist was thinking like so many other prophets, especially Ezekiel, I mean not Ezekiel, Isaiah and Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed our reports? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who will believe me? This message. I'm just a man in a camel's coat. And yet John is the last of all of those great prophets of old. Even Jesus himself will say he is the greatest of prophets. And even if you're willing to believe, he's Elijah in spirit. And Elijah was pretty well known. He's better than him. And yet he can't untie the latches of his sandals. Unworthy is he. Isaiah said, I will allot him a portion with the great. This is a great man in our presence. John knew what Isaiah was saying. He's so great. Jesus, you should be baptizing me. How is it that you want me to baptize you? He's greater than Abraham, friend of God. Greater than Moses who gave the law. Greater than Solomon, the richest man in the world. Christ's riches are so much greater. He's greater than David. There's not a king to compare to David. And yet Christ is greater than him. John recognizes this greatness. Lord, I have need to be baptized by you. And only by the Holy Spirit can John say this. He has the same faith that you and I have to which God gave us as a gift of grace to believe and to see who this God-man is. Jesus says back to him, permit it for this time that we might fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> and John the Baptist will say, I must decrease that he must Increased, And from that moment on, Jesus steals John's own disciples. He must decrease. There is one greater than he now. Jesus is now working the works of the Father at this moment. Just starting his ministry at 30 years old. Meeting the requirements of a priest to enter the temple. Neil Armstrong said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Jesus' arrival is greater than that first step. And let me say it this way, one small step for the Son of Man, one giant leap for mankind, that men might be saved and not go to hell. He is fulfilling all of history. He will demonstrate his kingship and also his humility as a servant and fulfill Isaiah 53. Philippians 2 says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Fully God, fully men. Early Judaism believed that Isaiah 53 was speaking of Messiah. Later Judaism did not. They thought of it as Israel, that God was speaking. There had to be some holdouts, though, that saw the Messianic promises that this Isaiah 53 was talking about Messiah to come as a servant. We do know that in the first century, so many thought that Jesus would be their salvation from the Romans as a king who rules over armies rather than over the hearts of men and women. The life God is calling his son to through John the Baptist is to suffer for Israel. And Israel will reject their Messiah. You could say at this moment in Matthew 3, this is the inauguration of his ministry. And he will be vilified from every corner of the earth in every different way. But yet, people will know he is different. Some will say he never spoke. No man ever spoke like this man. Others will say he could never do these miracles if God were not with him. Listen, O Israel, here is your king veiled in human flesh. John the Baptist might as well be saying. 
And don't you dare, you hypocrites, be baptized thinking that somehow you got a greater standing with God. Bear fruits of worthy of repentance that John will say to the leaders of Israel. He says the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And Messiah is ready to chop it down to anyone who has a false faith. Who will believe this carpenter? Many will say, does he not have calluses on his hands as every carpenter does? Brother Greg, right? He surely must be just a man, the one about to be baptized by John. Some will say he eats and drinks just like us. God is spirit. He doesn't eat or drink. Were you not there when he cried at the tomb of Lazarus? God doesn't cry, does he? I saw him angry in the temple. Overturning the tables of the money changers. Surely men get angry. God gets angry. Yes, but I just saw a man turn over tables. They may even say to John, John, the very sandals that you say you're unworthy to unlatch. Have you noticed the dust on his feet? When you took or said you would not be able to take the dust off his feet? Have you seen his feet? It's as dirty as ours. They need to be wiped clean at the end of the day, like everyone else. Amen. And then the heavens opened up. And the Father says to his only begotten Son, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove coming upon him. A Trinitarian witness at this moment at the Jordan River to fulfill off all righteousness in order to begin a ministry. Your Messiah, ladies and gentlemen. There is no other way to be reconciled to God but the beginning of the suffering servant of Isaiah for Christ to fulfill. God says concerning his son in Psalm 2, as for me, that's the father, I have installed my king. He is a king and he will be installed as a king as he ascends to the father in full victory and power. Psalm 2 also says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son today, I have begotten thee. Ask of me, he says. I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. These are your gifts from your Father, Jesus. One small step for the Son of Man. Why do I say one small step? Interesting. You learn something every day. Evidently, Neil Armstrong said... One small step for a man. But there's a garbled recording of when he said it. And Neil Armstrong said, I'm not quite certain if I did say it. Because we're talking about one little indefinite article, the A. But I'm saying it because of this. It's a small step for the Son of Man. Because when you consider eternity... And this small wedge of time and time and space to which the Son of God comes to this earth to set up a ministry to redeem man. This is a blip on the screen. And yet, the recipients are us. In one giant leap for mankind. In comparison to one small step for God. Like Elijah, Jesus has put his hands to the plow and he will not look back. His feet are shod with the gospel of peace and he's preparing it at this moment. He wears the belt of truth and he's going to speak it. His breast is blazoned in righteousness and he's going to live it. His shield of faith is in his father's will and he's going to do it. And his sword cuts the souls of men, and he will save some. 
Psalm 55:21 says, His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. This is the fulfillment of the ministry, ministry of the Son of Man and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the presence of those on the banks of the Jordan. I've come to bring peace to the individual human heart, and yet I have also begun a war against evil and against sin. And those who commit it. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Micah says, from you, O Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity, the eternal Son has now become the Son of Man. And he'll be vilified for saying he's God. And only those by faith and here this day have salvation because they believe that he's more than a man who died on the cross. And those who want to be saved must believe that he's more than a man to die on the cross. Let Jesus' arrival cause your heart to worship today. Because that arrival... We can't stand back on the banks of the Jordan River in the first century. We're just not old enough. But every single one of us here has been saved as if we were on the banks of the Jordan. Being immersed in repentance and seeing for the first time with our own eyes the Son of God who will pay the penalty of our sin on Calvary's cross. Look with me if you would. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We've heard that Jesus was baptized. The Spirit descends upon Him. The voice from heaven, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's read of another instance where the Spirit of God comes upon the Lord Jesus. Read along with me if you would. Verse 16 of chapter 4. And He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He hath sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives in the recovering of sight to the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, correct? He ends up going down to Egypt and he's brought back by Joseph and the family and goes back to where? Where he dwelt. Where it says right here, where he was brought up, Nazareth. It tells us of Nazareth that no good thing can come out of Nazareth. No, no good thing can come out of Galilee. You would think that the greatest of all, of all creation, and Jesus was a created being on earth, an uncreated God, but an uncreated God became a created human being, and He was the firstborn, the greatest of all creation. You would think that He might go to a, 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 a palatial location where he would be esteemed, he would be recognized as king, as ruler, as governor, as some person of high character. But he chose to go to a place called Nazareth. It tells us in the book of 
Matthew that he would be called a Nazarene. The Scripture says he would be called a Nazarene. Where in the Old Testament do you find a reference to Jesus being called a Nazarene? There is no Scripture reference to that particularly. What could we say then? How then would that Scripture possibly have been fulfilled? It tells us in Isaiah 53 that he was a root out of dry ground. That's where he came from. You know, where a person comes from sometimes is very significant. Do you ever ask somebody, where are you from? You know, you're listening to the accent, maybe you're even watching their behaviors, and somehow there's usually a connection between where somebody is brought up and what they are. Well, Jesus chose to be brought up in a despised location that was, and you could say, it was in Timbuktu, according to our language. It was in nowhere land. It was an out-of-the-way place, up in Galilee, which was called Galilee of the Gentiles. He had no reasons, as it were, naturally speaking, to be an esteemed character of Israel. But he chose to dwell in a city called Nazareth. On the cross, what what did it say on the cross? Do you remember Matthew when Jesus was crucified? What does it say over the top of the cross? What were the words? What is it? Louder. You missed a part of it. Ken. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was a mockery. A king coming from Nazareth. That's who he was. Nazareth, the population they estimate at Jesus' time, was a surprising 500 people. 500 people. Teeny. That's about, you know, 100 yards each direction around here would probably bring you 500 people. Nazareth, 500 people. I have a little experience with, with Nazareth, by the way. I'll just give you a little sideline about that. When I went to Israel about five years ago, we wanted to hit some of the important places, and Nazareth was on the list. But I had known about Nazareth beforehand from videos that I had watched that it was primarily a Palestinian city. It was overrun by the Palestinians. It was not Israel territory. So there was a little tension about going there uh, among the Islamic people, the Arabic people there. And um, we were driving in the car, and it was very populated, very populated. And we did a circle, and we came in around the city, into the inner city, and we went around a rotary, and just as we came around, right in front of us was a sign on a door that said, The Bible House. I got excited. I said, hurry up, pull over, I'm going in. Before the car even stopped, I jumped out of the car. I went and knocked on the door. I said, I see the words, and they were in English too, by the way. The Bible house. I wanted to talk to them. Well, praise the Lord, they were, they were children of God. They, they were a Christian couple that was trying to reach the Palestinian community. And this sister was in there, and she would be... She told us of her ministry with a Palestinian woman and how she's trying to introduce them to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. It was very, very exciting. Uh, and her husband works at the, uh, uh, the college, uh, Bethlehem Bible College, where he was one of the professors. I've never got to meet him. But anyway, that was my exciting visit to Nazareth. Well, anyway, getting back to our text here, he came to Nazareth. He had been baptized. It says he left Galilee from what our brother Todd was was teaching from. He left Galilee, that's in the north. He apparently went down to the south in Judea and he went to the Jordan River and was baptized. And then after that, he was driven, remember, into the wilderness immediately after his baptism for 40 days. And then it tells us that he went and he visited the synagogues teaching in the synagogues. Can you imagine this person arriving in the synagogue Teaching, and here we have a example, an example of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. It was on the Sabbath, which is the, the day of the week when the Jews would come together in a synagogue. A synagogue is just really another word for an assembly. Sunago is the same word as in Matthew 18 and 20, for where two or three are 
gathered together, where two or three are synagogue, you could say, where the synagogue come together. That's what a synagogue was. Jews in various places, near Jerusalem, far from Jerusalem, primarily those that were distances even as well, in, in foreign lands, Jews would come together in one place and they would have a synagogue service. What went on in a synagogue? Synagogues didn't probably come into existence until about 200 years before Christ, somewhere in that time period. And it was primarily because the Jews were scattered outside of the land of Israel and there was a need for them to come together for themselves and they came together for these purposes that I'm going to share with you. One of the things that they did in their synagogue service, they repeated the Shema, which says what? Here, who can say it in uh, Hebrew, by the way? Could you rise up and say it nice and loud, Josiah? I'm so glad I called on you today. <laughs> and that wasn't even rehearsed, by the way. I had no idea. But thank you. In English, it's translated, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was an important declaration for Israel to state about who they were and what they believed. We believe in not only the true and living God, but God who is one. A monotheistic believing community they were. They believed in one God. Their prayers, which took place in the synagogue, were always addressed to the east or towards Jerusalem. Whatever direction the synagogue happened to be erected, they would always face Jerusalem. In the congregation, when prayers were offered, they were concluded with a, Amen! You dead people here, I don't hear that many amens anymore. Amen. What does amen mean? Right on, brother, right on. That's it, that's it. I'm, I'm putting a punctuation point on what you're saying. I'm amening that. Oh, that's encouraging to a preacher, I'll tell you. Huh, brother Todd, when you get it? Amen, brother Pat and all you preaching brothers, you know what I'm talking about. And then the next thing that went on in the synagogue was the reading... This was very, very critical, very important, was the reading of the law and the prophets. The reading of the scriptures. How much emphasis do we put on the reading of the word? The public reading of the scriptures. In Nehemiah's day, it says when he stood up for it to read, it says, and all the congregation stood up as well. And maybe we should do that more often sometimes, that when I'm reading or when someone's doing a public reading, we all stand up. Like when we did Psalm 46, we all stand. Why? Because we are showing reverence, respect, and honor to the inspired words of God that we are reciting now. And that's just what the Israelites would do when they would come together in a synagogue and read from the Law and the Prophets. And then after that, there was an opportunity for a commentary. And I, I won't turn to it, I don't have the time, but if we went to Acts chapter 13, when Paul went into the synagogue, which often was the outpost for evangelism, because there the Scriptures would be read, and like what Jesus does here, and what He does later in the Gospel of Luke and others, they took the Scriptures and showed out of the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ the Messiah of God. They read out of the law and the prophets. And once those were completed, like it was said to Paul, men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation? Say on. Say on. In other words, give it to us. Do you have something to say to add, to supplement the reading of the Word of God? Well, speak up. Make it be known. Say on. And, and Paul in the book of Acts 13 boldly stands up and proclaims again that Jesus is the Christ and the one to whom the Scriptures pointed. Jesus too is going to give a brief commentary. He's from Nazareth where we have been brought up. His custom was to go to the synagogue. Jesus outwardly did not distinguish himself from anybody else. 
I don't even think looks wise that he was necessarily some glorified human being outwardly that would be so attractive that everybody would turn their heads and look, look at this beautiful feature of a, of a man. I don't think so. I think he fit in ordinarily with the crowd. Certainly, looks and whatnot were not the big deal back then like they are with us. What I'm trying to say is he fit in with everybody. As a child, he played with the other children in the neighborhood. As a young man, he worked with Joseph as a carpenter, which was a normal thing to learn the trade of a parent and to take it over possibly from the parent even, and that's what Jesus did. And as his custom, and the custom was for the Jews to come together in the synagogue, which is what he did, on the Sabbath day, and it says he stood up to read. Wow. Standing up. Now, in this particular sanctuary, we have this pulpit elevated, which is good. I mean, everybody can see me, and there's reasons for it. Some of the other churches I've been in, and even preached in, some of them, and I know Spurgeon himself and his, where he preached in London, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he had to ascend 15 steps to get into the pulpit. In the book by Martin Lloyd-Jones about preachers and preaching, it says that every step that Martin Lloyd-Jones took as he was going up the pulpit, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Fifteen times until he mounted the pulpit, showing and knowing, making us know how dependent he was upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit to come forth from him to the congregation for saint and sinner alike. But in the synagogue, it wasn't like that. Be right down with everybody else. Like a lecture hall, just pretty much right smack in the middle of everybody. And it probably was even in the middle, and the seats were arranged in a way that, yes, that was central, but it was not elevated. I think what you might even find in today's synagogues, at least some of them, would be pretty similar to the way they would have been back then. Jesus stood up, it says... To read. Now, it's hard to know, was it Jesus' turn to read? Remember, he's in his hometown now. He had been away. He had gone from Galilee down to the Jordan to get baptized. How long he was gone? My estimation from having been there, from where Jesus would have been brought up to where he was baptized, would have been somewhere between 50 and 60 miles would be my estimation. So this is not a, just a, you know, a half of a day trip. It's, it's a couple of days or more journey to go from there down to the Jordan. And then he comes back. Whether he stopped at various synagogues on the way, we don't know. We remember at least he was 40 days in the wilderness, tempted of the devil. But he comes back into the synagogue because that was his custom. And he stood up to read... And it says the scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Could you come over here and hear me that scroll? This is what happened. Jesus didn't have it with him. He had it given to him. That was customary. These scrolls, if you've ever been to a synagogue, to a service, I've been to a Messianic one, that's about it. I would like to go to a Jewish synagogue, though, sometime. Just for... Uh, just for observational purposes, but I've seen them carry these large scrolls in uh, these, uh, like, like a papoose almost, and, and they carry them very respectfully, very reverently. And I, I admire that, that we too should have, if anybody, a high regard for the Word. Um, the scroll was handed to him, not a book. You guys have it made in a shade where you can just open up to page so-and-so. Chapter 61 of Isaiah, let's turn to... You get to that in, in 15 seconds or whatever. If you know your Bible even quicker, if you did sword drills as a little child, you can really find these locations like ASAP. Well, the scroll was given to him. The scroll of Isaiah. Now, there's no doubt that the Isaiah has how many chapters? 66. 
They say that the Gospel of Matthew, they've discovered archaeologically, that one scroll was 28 feet in length of the Gospel of Matthew. Isaiah, I would say, would probably be maybe three or four times longer. You would not get that on a scroll, or one scroll. It would be multiple scrolls. So probably a certain section of the, of the book of Isaiah would have been given to Jesus. It was his turn, or it was his custom, one or the other, to be a reader in the synagogue. The attendant would hand Jesus the scroll, and literally wrapped up like this. And it does tell us right here, the scroll of, of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, unrolled the scroll, and found the place where it was written. Wow, what suspense. Jesus is standing there. Now, of course... Remember, he's familiar to everybody in town. He's not a new kid on the block. He's been there for years, from, from childhood. Jesus grew up there. But there must have been something very special about this day. At least Luke seems to bring that to a sort of a dramatic climax here. He unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it is written. Now, Jesus is the author of the book. The book's all about him. But being a man on earth, he did what anyone else would do. He would look to find it. He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I wondered if he stopped right there and said, The Spirit of the Lord God upon me. I'm sure that raised some eyebrows. What? What is he saying? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. When he said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, right there is the indicator that he is the Messiah. He is the Messianic figure that Israel, for hundreds and hundreds of years, was waiting to come. The Deliverer. It's the new Moses on the scene. Unlike Moses who came from a mountain, Jesus came down from heaven. Full of grace and truth. Not coming down with two tablets of stone, but coming down with grace number one and truth number two. And He's about to deliver it and says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I don't know if he preached Billy Sunday style and said, Hey, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. I don't know. Could it be? Maybe unlikely. I don't know that that would have been customary to do. But whatever, however he said it, however he looked, whatever the atmosphere provided... All indications were, this is the day. This is the one. He is it. The Messiah. Is it possible? He quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, He has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound. We have our new Moses, a new bondage breaker. Does anybody have a broken heart? Does anybody feel imprisoned? Well, this is a good news. Or Jesus is proclaiming the good news. I'm here to set the prisoner free. Like the hymn writer said, He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. 
the bondage breaker. Hallelujah if you're saved. The bondages of sin that held you captive have now been broken and you're free. Free at last. True freedom. You'll know the truth. The truth shall make you what? Free. Free from bondage. Free from imprisonment. The psalmist said, Lord, set me free from prison that I might praise Thee. The only ones that can really praise the Lord are the ones that have had the bondage of sin broken by the new Moses, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, the Bible says about Mary, the Spirit of the Lord God will come upon you and overshadow you, and that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Jesus' conception and birth from the womb was because of the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, at the water baptism, the Spirit descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third one here is when Jesus stands and reads the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In the first instance, the anointing is that He comes out of the womb. In the second instance, when He's anointed at the water, He comes out of the water. And the third one here is when He comes out of the woods. If I can use that expression. Like, wait a minute. We've known this Jesus of Nazareth for years. He's just been one of the, one of the boys. He's been one of us. He's a Nazarene like we are. And Jesus is like opening up that shirt and showing the big S. I'm the Savior of the world. I am He, the Messiah. At His birth, He was anointed King. Because that's what they said. Where is He that is born King of the Jews? At His baptism, He becomes a priest. Why do I say that? At what age was a priest to be anointed? Thirty. How old was Jesus when He was baptized? Thirty. And then lastly, at at the synagogue, Jesus is anointed as prophet. At His birth, we have no reference to Him speaking. At His baptism, we have no reference to Him speaking. But at His synagogue reading, we do have Him speaking as a prophet out of the prophet Isaiah. After He had read the Scriptures, it says that He sat down. And while I'm sitting, I want to make an announcement that this is going to be my last day at Sovereign Grace Chapel. Do I have your eyes upon me? I mean, that might sound a little shocking to some. Some were saying, Amen, both time. But, uh, <laughs> but when Jesus sat down, it says that all eyes. No one was sleeping. Anybody out there sleeping? When Jesus sat down, nobody sat, nobody was sleeping. All eyes were upon Him. What a great hymn to plug in right here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. All eyes were upon Him. Whatever your eyes upon, if you're not saved, turn them away from that. Turn mine eyes away, the psalmist says, mine eyes from vanity. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What does Jesus mean to you? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Will you turn your eyes upon Him? Then the last thing, verse 22, it says... And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of His mouth. Gracious words. What were those words? What was the sound like? What was was so gracious about those words? They were like honey on His lips. They marveled at Him. It's not long after that, as soon as he opens up his, word, his mouth, 
and begins to expound the Scriptures and talks about the freedom that he's bringing to those in bondage and he has to announce that he's not just a, a Messiah or a Savior for the Jews, but he's a Savior for the world. He's after the widowed woman. He's after the leper. He's after the down and outers. He's after the prostitutes. He's after the thieves, the murderers. He's a Savior for sinners and sinners only far and wide. That was offensive to the Jews. You're going to leave our territory and you're going to go into a foreign country and you're going to give the gospel salvation message to the world? Absolutely. I'm the Savior of the world. That's who I am. And what, what do they want to do? His own people. Maybe John 1.10 means that. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. If there's an own, think of all of the Maybe family members, close friends, neighbors, they together want to push him over the brow of the hill and put him to death because Nazareth was set up on a hill and they want to push him over the cliff and kill him. How ironic! Gracious words, but yet at the same time, they want to kill the Son of God because he says he's a Savior for the Gentiles as well. You know, sometimes a Messianic, a Jew who believes in Jesus as a Messiah, oftentimes think of themselves as being in a special category. I'm a Messianic Jew. Well, praise the Lord that you are. And I say, guess what? I'm a Messianic Gentile. That's right. I believe in the same Messiah you believe in. He's a Messiah not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, so that the promises to the Gentiles might be fulfilled, so that we together with them can, as it says, rejoice ye Gentiles with His people, and He shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. Wow! What a day that was! This is His inaugural address. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. What more could He say? You can be set free because that's what I've come for. And if this is maybe your first introduction to Jesus as a bondage breaker, because we don't hear a lot about sin, about judgment, about the need that God's wrath must be poured out against sin, that your sins have bound you up, that you're, that you're all, all wound up with your sins and you can't get freedom from it. And maybe you don't even have guilt for them. The Bible says every one of us shall give account of himself to God. But the good news is that the one who came into the world was there and here to break the bondage of sin and to take away the power that sin has in your life and take away the penalty that sin will have upon you if you refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he was here today, if he was the reader and the preacher today, and if he was the one that sat down and you looked at him, what would your thoughts be? Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. That's the man. That's my Savior. That's the one who I loved, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say amen? Let's close in prayer.